few weeks ago, I ended five minutes early, and uh, then in that Sunday evening, I ended ten minutes early. So I, uh, I've treasured up 15 minutes in the bank. So throw your watch away, and um, we're going to meander together here through John 17. Go ahead and open your Bibles up there, if you would. Last week, I... Uh, gave you a brief update on the work the elders have been doing with regard to putting together a 10-year strategic ministry plan for this fellowship. Where are we going and what are we going to emphasize in, these, in the next decade that lays be, before us? You know, 10 years from now will take us to the year 2015. Doesn't that sound weird? I mean, that sounds like so far in the future, 2015. But it is only 10 short years away, and those of you with children know that you merely blink your eyes, and 10 years just evaporates like that. So the time is going to come and go quickly for us, and we need to know where we're going and what we're doing, that we might maximize the days that the Lord allows us to remain here on earth together. I have included for you in your um, bulletin a, a statement of core values. Probably most of you have seen it already. If you're like me, you, you open your bulletin first thing and thumb through it and see what's interesting in there. And hopefully that caught your eye. We did it black and white. You know, it didn't do anything fancy with colored paper or anything. But it's there. It's a black and white document. And that is the fruit of uh, several months of intense uh, study and uh, and dialogue and prayer that has gone on among the elders here at Foothill to really work out what are our core values? What does the Bible have for us? We believe these core values are not just actually for Foothill, that these are actually core values for any biblical Christian fellowship. And so they are somewhat generic in that sense, but they are specific to us too, and they represent our heart's passion for the leadership and, and our fellowship here together. So I'm not going to go through them, not now. You can take them home. They're in your bulletin this week. We'll put them again in next week, and then they'll come in again later because my plan is to finish John 17, the end of July here, and that doesn't give me very much time since it took me two weeks to get through the first five verses, and in two weeks I'm going to finish John 17. And I can do that if I really discipline myself. And I want to do that because what I want to do is in August, I want to take those five core values and I want to commit a five-week mini-sermon series on Sunday morning to those core values. I want to take the time to go through them with you, open the scriptures together and really uh, explore what God has to say and how and why the elders believe that these are the underlying principles that will derive, uh, drive the decision-making of this fellowship into the next decade. So that's my plan. Finish up John 17 and then work through those five together and then we'll return. And actually the Gospel of John finishes quickly after chapter 17. We roll right into the crucifixion narrative and then right back out on the other end with the resurrection. And so uh, we won't be in John too much longer after that. I have uh, entitled this message, Mission Accomplished. Because that's what Jesus says in verse 4 here of John 17. He says, I have accomplished the work that you sent me to do. 
Father, all that you had for me when you sent me to this earth, I have done. I've accomplished it all. I've not left a single thing undone. He accomplished his mission. Beloved, I, uh, I pray that when the Lord takes us home, either individually or corporately as a fellowship, when Christ returns for the rapture of his church, that we too could say, mission accomplished. Like the Apostle Paul, we could say that we have run the race, we have kept the faith, right? We have fought the good fight. And so we need to, in order to be able to do that, we need to know where we're going. And John 17 here in these first five verses helps us to do that. As I said to you last time, John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. It is a prayer that focuses not really too much on on what he has done as much as on what he is doing for others. The first five verses of John 17, if you want to outline, and I gave it to you last time, it, it, it it's Jesus' prayer for himself, but even there it's a, it's a prayer where he expresses the fact that he has mission accomplished, he has glorified the Father, and is now ready to return to glory. Beyond that, he turns in verses 6 through 19, and he begins to pray for the apostles themselves, that the Father would keep them, that he would protect them from the evil one, and that through their ministry, and he leads into the final segment of his prayer in verses 20 through 26, through their ministry, many would come to fellowship with him and the Father. So it's a prayer all about the work Christ is, is doing even today, the work that he, that he accomplished there that culminated on the cross and that it has been going on ever since for 2,000 years. We are very much a part of the work that Christ prayed for here in John 17. Let me read the text. These things Jesus spoke, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Even as you have given him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Last time as we began to nibble on this text together, we said that there are three requirements that come out of these first five verses, three requirements that we must meet if we are to accomplish our mission in life, if we're to be able to pray the kind of prayer that Jesus prays, I've accomplished the work you've given me to do. And we noted last time that the first requirement here for us is that we must seek the Father's glory as Jesus sought the Father's glory, verses 1 and 2. He very clearly says it. He says, The hour has come, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. My life is about your glory. I came to do the Father's will, he says. Everything I say, everything I do is to point toward the Father. Now the hour has come. The crucifixion is at hand. 
Implicit within the passion is the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ. It is, it is one big event pulled together. And he said, that event has come, Father. Now glorify me through that cross that I might turn and point the glory all to you. Even in the same way, verse 2, that I have glorified you and am glorifying you by bringing redemption to your elect. Those are, Father, that you have given to me, I in turn give eternal life to. I illustrate the glory that I am about most clearly in the, in the act of redemption. It is the act of redemption, it is the work of Christ atoning for the sin of his people that brings the Father maximum glory. Apostle Paul says it himself over in Ephesians chapter 1 in three times in that lengthy section there, Ephesians 1, that it is all to the praise of His glory. Beloved, our salvation is indeed something in which we can and should rejoice, but we should never, ever think of it as an end in itself. It is our salvation for His glory. He reached down to pluck us from the cesspool of humanity to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to put within the heart of those who hated God a love for their Creator, all for His great glory. We must understand that our mission also relates to the fact that the Father must be glorified. All that we do around here is for His glory, not for ours. It is for His glory. So if we are to fulfill our mission, we must seek that Father's glory. Secondly, if we are to fulfill our mission, we must understand the essence of eternal life. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus has just said, I give eternal life to those whom you have given to me. Because that, Father, is how you receive maximum glory. And then he turns around and gives us this interesting definition of eternal life. It's curious. I mean, if you were asked by someone to define eternal life, it's probably unlikely that you would have chosen such a short definition. This is, he says, eternal life, knowing God. Knowing God equals eternal life, Jesus says. What does that mean? How are we to understand his statement here? Notice first that Jesus doesn't, says, doesn't say that knowing God brings eternal life, although that's true. Or in Romans 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Knowing God does bring eternal life, but that's not what Jesus is focusing on here. He's, he's saying that the knowledge of God is eternal life. Not an endless existence, but a quality of existence. A, a quality of life, a, a quality of existence that, that may be called life. Genesis 2, God spoke to Adam there and he said in verse 17, Don't eat that fruit, for in the day that you eat of that forbidden fruit, you shall surely what? Die. Adam didn't drop dead that day, not physically, did he? But he died spiritually that day. He plunged himself and all of the race 
into spiritual death that day. In fact, to Paul over in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 5, he says that we are before redemption in Christ, dead in our transgressions, alienated from the life of God. That is, we do not have life. Biologically, we live, right? We eat, we move, we sleep, we think, but we are cut off from God. We do not know God. Jesus said, this is eternal life. It is knowing God. Knowing God. This idea that he is speaking of here, by the way, is not new. It is an Old Testament motif that is woven through the pages of the Old Testament. The idea that life is the knowledge of God or that the knowledge of God is life, said the other way. The prophets speak of this often. Let me just remind you, some of these you have read already in our Bible readings, others we will get to, but let me just quickly give you some of the words of the prophets as it speaks about the knowledge of God and equates it to what it means to live. Habakkuk 2.14, also available to us in this morning's text of Isaiah 11.9, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea talking about that great and future millennial kingdom, the time when the new covenant is in place with the nation of Israel, and they will know their God. Jeremiah 31, 34. The prophet writes, And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sin or their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. They will know me for I will forgive their sin. Beloved, that is a description of life everlasting. Isaiah 54 verse 13 says, All your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. Jeremiah 24, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Knowing God, the prophets say, is life. And conversely, the prophets say that not knowing God is spiritual ruin. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6 My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. The prophet says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8, For those who handle the law did not know me. Jeremiah 4, verse 22, For my people are foolish, they know me not. Jeremiah 9, verse 3, They bend their tongue like their bow, lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. It is very, very clear the knowledge of God is life and the failure to know God is death. Now in the Old Testament, the knowledge of God came primarily through the law, didn't it? As they stand on the edge of the land of Canaan, 
book of Deuteronomy and the second giving of the law in chapter 6. Moses speaks to the people there and he, and he says that you will take that law and, and you, will, you will diligently meditate on it yourself and you will teach it to your children and, and it will infiltrate every aspect of your life because that's how you will know me. You will know me through my word. The psalmist himself said in Psalm 119 verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. We know God through his word. And it is the knowledge of God that is life. It is to be transformed. And it is to be introduced into a life that could not otherwise be experienced. Apostle Paul over in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 and 18 speaking of the Gentiles. The fact that they do not God, he says, they walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. Those without God do not know him. Those that know him live. What is involved in knowing God? What does it mean to know him? We can establish the fact that that that's what it means to live, but, but let's be more specific. What is involved in knowing God? Let me suggest to you three aspects of what it means to know God. First, there is a relational knowledge of God. There is a relational knowledge. To know someone truly necessarily involves intimacy. It involves relationship. It's more than simply knowing something about somebody. It is to, to know them in an intimate, relational way. It always cracks me up when you hear schoolboys talking about their friends. You know, schoolboys have more friends than anybody else in the world. They meet somebody for ten minutes and, my friend so-and-so, right? They're very casual in the use of that kind of expression or description but that's not what's being talked about here when Jesus says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. There is an expression here of an intimacy. Back in Genesis, when Moses is referring to the most intimate of human relationships, the marriage relationship, and the most intimate of acts within that relationship, he uses the word no. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. There is that level of intimacy. It is that one flesh relationship of marriage that, that God chooses the word no to describe. And so when it says here, this is eternal life, that they may know you, there is that kind of relational intimacy being talked about here. To, to know God is to communicate with God. It is to have a passion for God. It is to spend time with God. It is to have a purposefulness to our relationship with God. It is very much a, a relational knowledge that Jesus is talking about here. Beyond that, he speaks of a growing knowledge. Where it says again in verse 3, that they may know you. 
He uses a, a present tense verb here, and, and within that present tense is, a, is the idea that this is a growing, an ongoing and a growing knowledge and relationship. This is not a stagnant, static, stable kind of thing. This is a, this is a knowledge of God that continues to grow and to grow and to grow throughout time. You know, they... Um, they say that the longer a couple is married, the more they begin to look like one another. Sorry, honey. <laughs> the longer they spend together, the more they look like one another. The more they think alike, the more they speak alike, the more one they become. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, he's speaking there of Moses and when he used to go up to Mount Sinai right in the presence of the Lord, the glory shone on his face so brightly he had to veil his face when he came down from the mountain because the people couldn't stand to look even on the reflected glory of God. Apostle Paul picks that up in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. He, he says that each one of us that's you and me. He says, each one of us with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The more time you spend in a growing relationship with God through Christ, the more you will look like Him. And that's good. Because the Apostle Paul says that it is the work of the Spirit. His ministry is a transforming ministry as he conforms us to the image of who? Christ. There is a growing knowledge involved here in eternal life, beloved. And finally, third, there is a factual knowledge. The knowledge of God does have an objective, factual side about it. We must know, again, look at the verse 3. We must know the only true God, he says, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. By the way, Christ is not his last name, right? It is his title, Jesus the Messiah. We must know this one from Galilee who is God's anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we must know the only true God. Again, picking up the theme of the prophets where continually they say that the gods of the, of the nations are false gods. They are foolish gods. They are gods of their own making. But we have the only true God. Our God deals in absolute propositional truth. He is not a God of relativity. He is, a, he is a God who speaks truthfully. Jesus Christ is a historical person rooted in time and space. And if we are to come to know Him, we come to know Him through His Word. Your eyes just slip over to verse 20, where Jesus is praying for these apostles, and he says that I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Beloved, the word of the apostles is the written word of God. You hold on your laps this morning. We come to know the true God objectively, truthfully, propositionally through his holy 
Scripture. We cannot know God any way we choose. We cannot come to God any way we choose. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through me. It is a very narrow gate that leads us into the presence of the true God. That's why biblical Christianity is so concerned with the mind, with the education of the mind, with the teaching of right doctrines. Because if man thinks in his heart, so he is. What we think about God matters immensely. If we are to think incorrectly about God, we will end up with the wrong God. We must think truthfully, truly about Him. The words of the Apostle Paul again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we must take every thought captive to Christ. We live in a time of of a religious publishing explosion. Recent issue of World Magazine had a fascinating article. It was talking about how in the, in the last number of years that the publishing of Christian books or religious books has exploded. That now the, the major retail chains, which never would have carried anything of of a Christian religious nature are now carrying these titles. And, and not only that, they're making the New York Times bestseller list. It used to be that all that was ignored. It was, it was marginalized. It was stuck off to the side. Now it's big business. There is a lot of money to be made in the merchandising of religious publications. And that has not gone unnoticed. People are now profiting from it. And you would think with the number of copies being sold, sometimes, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies, you would think that people would know God today in a way unlike prior generations. With all of what is available to them, uh, you know, open a, a catalog and look at the number of Bible translations that are available. It, it's a plethora. It fills page after page. You can have it in any version you like, in any color, or in any, you know, you name it. Every month they're coming out with a new targeted niche version of the Bible. It's, it's all over the place. So you would think people would know God. Yet we live in a time of appalling biblical ignorance. People don't know God today. Not really. Not truly. I think I can fairly safely say that the average churchgoer today in America knows less about God than they did three generations ago. The cry that is heard today in the church is, is make it relevant. The cry of a few generations ago was cut it straight. We've moved. We've moved. Does it ever strike you as strange when you read through the, the book of Acts? You read Paul's first missionary journey, how they went from place to place planting churches, right? And then at the end of that journey, a little over a year, he circles back around and they revisit all the churches that have been recently planted. And, and as they visit each church, they, uh, they appoint elders in the church. Did that ever catch your eye? They appoint elders in each one of those churches as they're headed on their way back to Antioch to report of the work of church planting. Did that ever strike you as curious? 
I mean, that's the Apostle Paul, remember, who wrote in 1 Timothy 3, that big, long, lofty list, right, about what it means to be an elder in order to be qualified to be an elder. Does all of these things have to be true of your life? And one of which is that there has to be a level of biblical knowledge, real biblical knowledge that is, that is representative of maturity. So how could it be after just a year he's able to go back through these churches and, and anoint all these elders? I think the answer has to be that, that those early converts were steeped in the Scriptures. They were already steeped in the Scriptures when Paul arrived. They knew their Old Testaments. They, they did not know the coming one who fulfilled the prophecies. So Paul would explain to them that Jesus is the one. In fact, in Acts 17, when he's there at the church at Thessalonica, it says he was there for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the Scripture and explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am preaching to you is the Christ. He was able to build on a foundation of, of biblical knowledge that already existed and show them the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and boom, the lights go on, and these men were already mature, thus able to carry the responsibilities of the leadership of the church. Not so today. Today it takes years after someone comes to faith. It takes years before they reach a level of maturity where they can be entrusted with the leadership of God's flock. Beloved, we have more access to the Scriptures, to the Word of God, than any prior generation, and yet there is a level of biblical ignorance that is so appalling. This is eternal life. It is to know God. If we're going to fulfill our mission, we must understand this essence of life, the essence of eternal life, and that leads us to the third requirement, and that is that we must proclaim what we know. If we are to fulfill our mission, we must proclaim the risen Savior, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I have accomplished everything you gave me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Take me home. I've done everything you sent me to do. I came to explain the Father, John 1.18. I came to atone for the sin of the world, John 1.29. I've done what I was sent to do, and now it is time for me to come home. Restore to me the glory that I once had. And, Father, do it through the cross. That which was the most shameful of human deaths is the gateway to the glorification of Christ. Take, my Father, that which no one can see anything in but shame and make it the place of my glory. Restore to me the glory which I had together with you before the world was. Jesus is not asking to be de-incarnated. When he came, second person of the Godhead, the eternal son came and took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He took to himself a, a human nature that he forever now bears. There was no reversal of that process. There can be no reversal of that process. 
So he's not asking for God to undo what was done. He was saying, glorify me, take me through this process, resurrect me, and let me ascend and return back to the glory that I once left. Psalm 110, verse 1, the psalmist speaks of this. It says that he will remain there until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the world empires to be put under him that he might come and rule visibly. Father took him to be with himself in a glorified body, didn't he? He raised him bodily from the dead. Jesus has a human body, beloved, just like you and just like me. Yes, his is a glorified body. Yours is not yet. But it's still a human body. He is the first fruits. You will have a resurrection body as he did or does. You know, in the incarnation, Jesus, he says here, give me back the glory. He voluntarily limited himself. He, the glory, the, the glory, uh, the glorious Son of God, limited himself to take on human flesh. He did not become less than divine, but he, he humbled himself, Paul says in Philippians 2. He, he restricted his independent use of his divine attributes. He lived in submission to the Spirit of God, conscious of his role. It's an amazing paradox, isn't it? The one who could still the storm with a word, the one who could multiply the bread and the fish, the one who could turn water into wine is the one who lay sleeping in the back of the boat, tired after a long day's ministry. The one who sat down at the well in Samaria at the noon hour because he was weary from the journey. This amazing paradox of the incarnate Christ. He says, take me home, Father. Take me home. Grant me back the glory that I once had with you. Beloved, as you read the gospel accounts, you see a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Punctuated by dazzling displays of divine glory. But it's a fuzzy picture. It's an obscured picture. It was only on a mountaintop that three of his inner core, the inner crew of disciples, right, saw his flesh peeled back and viewed his glory. They got a glimpse beyond the veil. You go to the book of Revelation. When Jesus appears there in the book in chapter 1, the description of him, verses 12 to 17, is far different from that of the gospel accounts. His eyes blaze. John says he fell at his feet like a dead man. The glory has been restored, the ascended one. He has had victory over death and the grave. He has broken the back of sin for his people. He is the glorified one, the risen Savior. After his crucifixion, it took a while for the apostles to grasp, grasp this, didn't it? There were periods of discouragement for them. Some of them went and decided to go fishing. Right? They weren't sure what to do, so let's go fishing, they said. The end of John's Gospel. 
It took a while for them to get a full understanding of what it was about and really what it took was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But when He came and made plain to them, as Jesus predicted He would, the significance and the reality of who Christ is and what He has done, those men changed. And their message became a message of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He has risen again. Not just that he was crucified. That was not the extent of his message. They didn't preach a message of a, of a crucifix, of, a, of the Son of Man still on that cross. They pre- preached a message of an empty grave. Of a resurrected and ascended one. One who will come again in judgment. Apostle Paul said it this way. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. He said, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the risen one. That is their message. That is their proclamation. The Apostle Paul says that people will either acknowledge that truth now by faith, this side of the grave, or they will acknowledge it on the other side when they encounter him as the fearful judge, the ascended and almighty one. Beloved, that's a good description of a Christian. A Christian is one who acknowledges the glory and lordship of Jesus Christ by faith in this life. The description of a non-Christian is one who will still do it. It'll just be done in the next when they encounter him as a fearful judge. Every week toward the end of the sermon I speak to you about Spiritual counselors, I say we'll have those who are available to talk with you. They will be over there. They'll be standing over there after service this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ yet, by faith, but maybe you want to, you're you're persuaded of the truth. You, You just have a few kinks you want to work out. Questions you want asked. Maybe like that Ethiopian eunuch, what must I do to be saved? Tell me, what do I need to do? These counselors will be available. They'll be over there by that lighted cross and they would love to open the Bible and talk with you about life everlasting. Jesus finished his mission here on earth, he says, verse 4. My mission is accomplished. Father, take me home. Restore to me the glory which I had with you before the world began. Make it plain and clear to all who I am. And then he returned to glory. And beloved, when he returned, our mission began. That's when our mission began. Began. Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2 9, 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been redeemed, Peter says, so that you might proclaim the risen one. When Jesus' mission ended, ours began. That's a mission that we have as individuals. It's a mission that we have as a church. We must be seeking the Father's glory. We must understand the essence of eternal life, and we must proclaim the risen Savior. Accomplishing that kind of a mission takes effort. It's hard work. It takes commitment. It takes a willingness to make choices, to forgo some things in order to be able to do others. So my question as we close this morning is, are you willing to do that kind of hard work? Are you willing to fulfill the mission for which God has left you here? He could have redeemed you and taken you home immediately, right? If the purpose of our staying here was fellowship, the fellowship in heaven is much more glorious than the fellowship here. If the reason for Him saving us is that we might then grow in our understanding of who God is, beloved, we will grow so much more on the other side of the veil. There's really only one thing that can't be done there and can only be done here. And that is to proclaim the risen one. To whom much has been given, much is required. Let's pray. God our Father, we beg you for your grace. We ask you to pour out onto us our Father, grace upon grace. Enable us to overcome the challenges of this life, the, the fear of man that stocks our soul, the temptations that seek to draw us away. We pray, our Father, that we can become a people who are single-minded, a people who understand their mission and reason in life. A people who will go forth unashamedly proclaiming the gospel of the resurrected one. Dear Father, we pray that your spirit would go before us. Lord, we want to go nowhere that he has not gone first. We pray for our team heading to Argentina middle of next month. Lord God, even now they're working diligently to get ready to go, but they are so well aware, our Father, as are we, that unless you are there waiting for them, all will be for naught. May your Holy Spirit work in that place 
preparing the soil, breaking up the hard pack, preparing it to be ready to receive the seed of the gospel. And in our own neighborhoods, Father, and families, with our friends and relatives, those that we meet casually and those that we know well, our Father, help us to get around to the gospel. We're so good at talking about everything else. So poor at talking about the things that are truly meaningful. Father, work in our hearts, work in my heart, Lord. Enable me to be a faithful man. Diligently pursuing Christ and courageously proclaiming Him. We pray in the name of Christ and for the Father's glory. Amen.